Uh, we're back in Genesis, and can I just say, I'm having a lot of fun with Genesis the last few weeks, and uh, I hope so. It's 50 chapters long. Uh, we're going to be here for a while. Um, it. Um, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, uh, you know where we've been, but let me just do a quick refresher. Uh, we looked at the first couple verses, uh, the first week, the first two verses, in fact, and we saw uh, the Spirit of God hovering over uh, the waters that were uh, formless and without void. That's what we saw in the first two verses. And then last week we looked at verses 3 to 25. And we saw how God created the heavens and the earth in those first five and a half days. And the way that they're situated is that they're situated in such a way that God cures the formlessness and he cures the void by in the first three days creating habitats. He had the sky and the waters and the land and the day and the night. And then he fills those habitats. He puts, sun in the sky, he puts sun in the day. He puts moon in the night. He puts the birds in the air and the skies. He puts water in the waters. He puts animals on the land. He fills them. Makes form. And on the second half of the sixth day, he creates human beings. And that's what we're going to look at today. And our text, we'll see, is going to address some questions that we all ask. Whether we ask them directly or they're in the background somehow of how we view our lives. But we ask questions like, who am I? Does my life matter? And is life worth living? See, if I stuck a microphone in your face and I ask you those questions, what would you say? I mean, if you're like me, you likely fumble through some uh, anecdotal things that are pretty vague and don't really make sense. Or you would just say, I, I don't know, I'm not a philosopher. But I believe that we all answer these questions. And even if we can't articulate, articulate them, they shape our vision for life and they affect how we actually live. And one of the foundational texts that the church has always used to answer these questions comes from Genesis 1. It comes from the creation of human beings. So let's read Genesis 1. 26 to 31 together. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. The word of the Lord. See, our text here, these six verses give us all kinds of clues that the creation of human beings is the pinnacle the apex of the creation week. And here are just a few clues. I, I've, I've got four. There may be more, but I've got four of, of why human beings are the pinnacle of creation week. The first is, ver is a verbal clue. 
See, man and woman are said to have been made in God's image after his likeness. In fact, it's said three times. Did you catch it? Once in verse 26 and twice in verse 27. And nothing else that God made during creation week was made in his image. Not the animals, not the plants, nothing else. Therefore, man and woman reflect God's character to a degree that nothing else in creation does. The second thing we see is in verse 31. Do you see it? Did you catch the difference? In verse 31, as the day comes to a close, God says, and it was very good. Now that's similar to what he said at the end of the first five days of creation, but it's also different. It's similar in the fact that the first five days, God says, and it was good. But on day six, it was very good. Well, what's the difference? The difference is that the most valuable thing of creation happened on day six. Mankind, image bearers, were created. The third clue you see is the positioning of mankind. Them being created last signals to us, the reader, that this is what each creative act was building toward. And then look at the announcement, the fourth clue. Do you see what it says? In verse 26, the very beginning, it says, let us. That's different than the first seven creative acts where it's announced impersonally and passively. It says, let there be. But here we have this personal resolution, let us. So human beings are the pinnacle of creation. And this has huge implications for our lives. And I want to spend our time looking at two. One is that when you, when you see human beings as the pinnacle of all creation, it affects your own self-image and it affects the way you view others. So let's look at our self-image. See, being made in God's image means that human beings have a rock-solid objective, irreducible value. Human beings being made in God's image has a rock-solid, objective, irreducible value. And isn't this a corrective to the way that many of us think about ourselves? Many of us, we think we're frauds. Many of us think we don't have much to offer the world. And our culture knows this. Our culture knows that many of us think we're frauds. They know that we think very little of ourselves. So what our culture tries to do is to pump you up. It tries to boost your self-esteem. Well, back in the 90s, there was uh, this spoof that Saturday Night Live did. And it was called Daily Affirmations. Anybody ever seen it? Uh, Daily Affirmations was a talk show of sorts on SNL. The guy who played, who, who, who ran the talk show on, on the show, his name's Stuart Smalley, but his real name is Al Franken. And every, at, at the beginning of every show, at the beginning of every daily affirmation, Stuart Smalley says this. He says, I deserve good things. I'm entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I'm an attractive person. I'm fun to be with. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people. Because I'm good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And he does it at the beginning of every single show, and it's hilarious. It's only funny because it's true. See, anytime you see a self-help guru, you, you know it, it rings hollow. You, knew that, you know that this kind of self-help is ineffective, and that's why it's worth making fun of. 
And the reason it doesn't work is because we have this inner critic, don't we? We have an inner critic that has a very loud voice. And this inner critic is quite apt at helping us feel low. Like there's no way that we're valuable. So what can make you feel low? What could be any number of things? But for many of us, what makes us feel low, what makes us feel like our lives have little value is the way we view our physical bodies. I recently read an article in the New York Times. It's called, What It's Truly Like to Be a Fashion Model. And in the article, a journalist interviewed several models about what it was like to be in the fashion industry. It's an enlightening article. It's about five years old. But it's also really, really sad. And here's what one woman said about being a model. She said, all of high school, being a model was all I could think about. I started modeling locally in Nashville as soon as I was done with high school. I started modeling professionally in New York when I was 21. The girls at castings that were getting selected were all very, very skinny. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself to be that girl because I wanted to succeed. And over time, I developed anorexia and bulimia. That lasted five or six years, and it wasn't until a couple years ago that I realized I had a problem. I think there are definitely times when fashion agencies ask their girls to lose weight, and that's a problem. But I think a lot of it is just inherent to the industry because sample sizes are so small, and because the thinner you are, the more celebrated you are. Every day that you're working as a model, you're objectified somehow. You know if it's just a simple term of you being a mannequin or being a model, like you're not actually a person. You're just a vehicle for the clothing or the makeup or the hair. Heartbreaking, isn't it? And you don't have to struggle with your body image to struggle with your self-image. So this model, her perceived value was in direct proportion to how she felt about her body. What is your value in direct proportion to? What does it take for you to believe that your life is valuable? Well, here's what the image of God does. The image of God, being the apex of all creation, comes in and assigns life, a value to your life, regardless of how you feel about it. See, if you're waiting for a voice to come from the inside to tell you that you're good enough, there's a good chance it's never going to come. If you're waiting for a voice to come from the outside, and sometimes it does come from the outside to tell you that you're good enough, what happens when that voice changes his mind or her mind about you? Then what? But here's what the image of God comes in. The image of God becomes a voice in your life that says that you're valuable, and it comes from the outside, and it doesn't change its mind. God has come in and said that you are more valuable than the lilies of the field, you're more valuable than the birds of the air, and that you don't have the right to devalue yourself because he says that you're made in his image. So when you believe that your life lacks value, you're believing a lie from the pit of hell. So you see how the image of God affects the way you view yourself, but it also affects the way you view others. The Bible picks up on this in a couple different places. One is in Genesis 9-6, just a, a, few, a few chapters after what we read this morning. And Genesis 9-6 says this, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, meaning murder, 
By man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. See, this is a warning about murder. And, and what's working here is this underlying assumption that what makes murder so terrible is that murder is centrally about taking out the most valuable entity on the planet, a human being, an image bearer, and that has serious consequences. That's just Genesis 9-6. In other places, James 3-9 in the New Testament. James 3-9, he's addressing the dangers of untamed speech, and he says that our tongues both bless God and curse people who are made in God's image. So the reason that you shouldn't curse people is because they're made in God's image. So being in God's image affects the way we treat one another. It prohibits murder. It means the way we talk about and to one another is affected. And C.S. Lewis, he, he got this. He got this whole image of God thing quite well. And in his essay, The Weight of Glory, here's what he writes. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal whores or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other quite seriously. There's no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. See, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that when we see each other's image bearer, that we assign infinite value to one another. We give each other the utmost respect. So that's the image of God on this interpersonal scale. But we can see it on a more systemic scale, structural scale, when you think about civil rights. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are no gradations in the image of God. Do you see what he does here? Do you see what Martin Luther King, Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. does? He asks the question, what makes human beings worthy of rights? It's a good question, isn't it? What makes human beings worthy of rights? What Martin Luther King Jr. did is he answered that question with, the image of God. See, the reason that Martin Luther King Jr. did what he did and what we as Christians should do for one another is that we don't do it out of some generic abstract love for mankind. It's got to be grounded in something. And it's grounded in the image of God. But if you're a secular person who doesn't believe in a personal God, then you've got to answer the question, what makes human beings worthy of rights? Well, many secular philosophers, they answer it this way. They say that the reason a human being deserves rights and protections is that they have the capacity to make choices between right and wrong. That they as human beings should be given rights and protections because they have the ability to reason. But I would ask the question, what happens when human beings don't have the capacity to choose right and wrong? What happens when human beings don't have the ability to reason? What do you do with those people? You know who those people are. They're the unborn. They're infants. There's old people who, whose, whose minds have begun to go awry. There's those who are mentally handicapped. So how do you protect them? How do you give them rights? 
if it's all about them having the ability to reason or have the capacity to choose between right and wrong. So you can't. And so you're sunk. But if you ground it all in the image of God, then you've got to champion all kinds of people. You've got to champion widows. You've got to champion the poor. You've got to champion the orphan. You've got to champion the unborn. You've got to champion people of all ethnicities. See, the circle of the dignity of life expands when you believe in the image of God. But when you don't believe in the image of God, it's going to continue to contract. And then the only people in your circle are those people that you benefit from. That's it. See, this whole discussion about how the image of God shapes the way you view yourself and how you view others, you should begin to be asking yourself other questions. You should begin to ask yourself, well, what happens when I try to remember and hammer home my image-bearing identity? What happens when I'm trying to do that, but the guilt and the shame won't go away? The depression won't go away? What should I do when the guilt and the shame and the depression are much louder than Genesis 127. What should I do then, Pastor? Should I get a tattoo, Genesis 127? I mean, an image bearer of God? Should you get a t-shirt, Genesis 127? Should you put Genesis 127 on index cards, put them on your dashboard and on your fridge? Is that what you should do? Or let me throw another scenario at you. What happens when a fellow image bearer has hurt you so bad and you just can't get over it? What happens when simply acknowledging their identity as an image bearer isn't enough to bring you to forgiveness? What happens when the only people who are in your circle, the only people that you benefit from, just happen to be family members? Or they happen to be people who are just like you in terms of age and stage and ethnicity and gender and politics. What then? What happens when just the knowledge of Genesis 127 doesn't hit home and change the way you view yourself or view other people? We've got to know what happens in Genesis 3. We're forecasting here. See, for all the glory that Adam and Eve possessed in Genesis 127... All they, all they possessed as being the pinnacle of creation, they couldn't maintain this original status. See, th their status as full image bearers was dependent on them carrying out God's prohibition to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did eat from the tree, they knew that their image bearing was in jeopardy. And at the end of the day, they couldn't keep up their end of the bargain. And you see immediately in Genesis what happens because of our broken image-bearing status. You see it immediately. Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve's son kills their other son. In Genesis 6, God is said to have seen the wickedness of man was so great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. But what we see here is that some element of the image of God survives. It's kind of like we resemble this cracked mirror if you look really closely, you can see some reflection of God in ourselves, but it's terribly distorted. It's got jagged edges of sin. It's not crisp. It's not clean. So how will this image be recovered? Well, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, and then Colossians 1.15, what we read earlier, they refer to Jesus as the image of God. We see in Romans that Jesus is called the second Adam. 
See, Jesus did what Adam couldn't. Jesus obeyed the Father at every turn. He was able to maintain his royal status throughout his entire life. And where Adam failed as an image bearer, Jesus succeeded. And now, that might not sound like it has anything to do with me and you. That's just, those are just theological truths. But what Jesus has done is he became the image of God to reclaim what's been lost in you and me. He comes to you through his spirit. He's come to empower you to do what you can never do on your own. No matter how much energy you exert to silence your inner critic, no matter how hard you try to drum up love for your enemies, and you can't, Jesus comes to you. He comes to you in all your frailty. He comes to you in all your rebellion, and he wants to rescue you. He sees you in that pit, and he's going to get down into the pit and pull you out. He came really far. He left his heavenly throne where he enjoyed nothing but honor. And now and he endured rejection. He endured suffering. He even endured death. And he might get into the pit with you and bring you out so that you might view yourself as an image bearer. And so that you might view others as image bearers too. See, Jesus thinks you matter. Jesus thinks you're valuable. And his estimation of you will never, ever change. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Lord, these are things that are hard to believe about ourselves. Lord, it's hard to live in such a way that we view all as image bearers. Lord, I pray you would help us. Help us see what you mean here. Give us new eyes to see uh, people as we live our lives. Lord, there, there, aren't, there, there aren't people, there aren't different gradations. Help us. In Jesus' name.